This weekend, uh, I've had the joy of getting to know uh, Christopher and Leon and Angela. Um, not only hearing their testimony, but just being with them. They are wonderful, gracious people. And it is a gift uh, to us to have them here this weekend. Uh, Leon and Angela are from uh, Chicago, as is their son, Christopher. And uh, I think Leon and Angela are a little bit nervous because Christopher has not shown up yet. Um, so uh, he's lost. Uh, Pastor John has just run out to, to find him. He'll show up. Um, so yeah, it is a, a gift to have them here. It's been just a privilege to hear their uh, life story, how God has worked in their lives, transformed them, drawn him, uh, drawn them to himself, and I know that you're going to be blessed by, by their story. Um, so, I don't want to tell their story. <laughs> After the, the service, you can go to the, the book table, there's some books out there, and uh, uh, Leon and Angela and uh, their son Christopher will be hanging around, uh, take time to meet them, to pick up their book, and uh, you saw him, he's coming. So we're no longer nervous. The Bible says don't be anxious. Uh, This is going to happen. It's wonderful. Um, As he comes, I just would like to pray for them and pray for us that we would listen well, hear well, hear what God has to say to us through them. Okay? Christopher is coming. You're not late, Christopher. You are right on time. Great to have you here. Glad you came. (laughs) It's been a full morning. Let's pray. So, Father, we are so grateful that... uh, You have brought to us uh, Dr. Christopher Ewan, Dr. Leon and Angela Ewan. Thank you that they're here as a family. More than this, we're just grateful, Lord, that you drew all three of them to yourself. And that today we have the privilege of hearing about the story that you have been writing in their lives, that you are writing in their lives. And Lord, as I said earlier, may we hear well and hear your word to us today. Pray that you would renew them and strengthen them um, and they would find much joy in serving you this morning, telling their story for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. America, where money grows on trees and streets are lined with gold. Well, that's, I perceive, when I first passed Ellis Island of New York City on October 30th, 1964, I quickly realized how wrong it was. The first night I stayed at my friend's rundown apartment in the slum of Harlem. Even more surprising was the day after, October 31st, when little people wearing masks, ring doorbells, and said, trick or treat. 
I said to myself, what have I got myself into? <laughs> Angela, my college sweetheart, came a few months later to America. Then we married the next year. I also assumed just because we were in love, we would simply live happily ever after. How naive I was. <laughs> I was not a Christian then after years of unresolved issues and self-centered living, our marriage was a disaster. So with the encouragement from both of our sons, we began the paperwork for divorce after 28 years of marriage. So on that same year, May 15, 1993, our son Christopher came home after his first year in dental school. He made an announcement. I am gay. Since our marriage was hopeless, I did not work as a team with my wife to face this enormous challenge. Not only did I not comfort her, but I also accused her making our son gay. Christopher's declaration affirmed my belief that we should all go our separate ways. Let him be, because there's nothing I can do about it besides. Isn't it more important to be happy? But my wife responded quite differently. You will never think that three simple words, I am gay, could cause so much pain. I actually thought I could threaten Christopher with the automaton to choose the family or choose homosexuality. But Christopher already bought into the lie that he couldn't change, that he was born gay. So he said, if you cannot accept me, I have no other choice but to leave. Without any hesitation, Christopher picked up his bags and left. Nothing can describe how I felt at that moment. It was worse then receiving news of Christopher's death. He could have caught me with a knife, and it would have hurt less. In my mind, Christopher, who was closest to me, and my last ray of hope had also betrayed me. I was at the end of my rope. As my world fell apart around me, I had no more reason to live, so I determined to do the unthinkable. I was going to end my life. Even though I was not a Christian at that time, I felt the need to meet with a minister who gave me a pamphlet on homosexuality. Then I bought a one-way Amtrak ticket to Louisville, where I planned to say goodbye to Christopher for the last time before ending it all. With only my purse and the pamphlet from the minister, I bought on the train, thinking that death was the only answer to all my problems. Never be much a reader. On the train, I began to read the pamphlet, which explained the plan of salvation, that all of us are sinners, yet God loves us in spite of our sin. God opened the eyes of my heart. Then I realized, just as God loves me in spite of my sin, I could love Christopher in spite of him living as a gay man. After arriving in Louisville, I called a number from the back of the pamphlet, 
and was connected to a Christian lady who began to disciple me. For six weeks, I immersed myself into the Bible and felt as if I couldn't soak up enough. You see, I went to Louisville expecting to end my life. In reality, I did. One of my favorite verses today is Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. After six weeks, I got a phone call from the lady who was discipling Angela. The lady was very, very excited and told me, your wife has surrendered her life to Jesus Christ. She has been saved. I was not very pleased. (laughs) I told her, this is not a good news. This is my worst nightmare because from now on, God is on her side. But what I realized, her transformation was not a Sunday-only change, but affected every aspect of her life. What she had was not religion, but an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. Little did I know, God was also work on me. So I started to go to church with her, Then a friend of ours invited us to a Bible study called BSF, Bible Study Fellowship, where we grow deeper into the understanding of and love for God and His Word. It was while studying the Bible in my church and BSF, I also surrendered my life to Jesus Christ. God became the glue kept our marriage together by drawing both of us to himself. This was God's way for preparing us for the difficult years ahead. As Christopher walked further and further away from God. From my childhood years, I was like most other Chinese American kids. Obey your parents, do well in school, and of course, practice piano. (laughs) You see, I didn't fit in with the other American boys. I looked different, I acted different, and I had different interests. God had given me the gifts of music, of sensitivity, and Satan cannot take away those God-given gifts, but he can twist the perception of them. And from a young age, I was viewed and ridiculed as being effeminate. The first time I remember having these attractions was when I was nine years old, after I came across pornography at a friend's house, at nine. At that young age, I was confused and afraid of those feelings. Without any parental guidance on sexuality, those magazines gave me a distorted view of sex, and they soon became my master. With pornography fueling my desires, I had my first encounter when I was 16 years old, but I kept my feelings hidden through high school, college, even the Marine Corps Reserves. In my early 20s, I started secretly going out to the gay clubs. Then when I moved to Louisville, Kentucky, where I was pursuing my doctorate in dentistry, I no longer kept it a secret, and I came out of the closet. 
I spent most of my free time in the gay clubs, and I went from relationship to relationship seeking intimacy and happiness, which I found temporarily, but it still left me feeling unfulfilled and unsatisfied. So I began experimenting with drugs. Now I need to be clear, not all gays and lesbians do drugs or are promiscuous. Some do, some don't. But I want to tell you my whole story and be honest and authentic about that. But I also want to tell you that when you encounter Jesus, he will impact every aspect of your life. So I began experimenting with drugs. But like my classmates, I didn't have much money. And if I was going to do drugs, I'd have to find a way to support my habit. And so I began selling drugs. And I sold to friends, classmates, even a professor. (laughs) See, I actually thought that I could live this double life of being a graduate student by day and a promiscuous drug dealer by night. But three months before I was to receive my doctorate, the administration expelled me. So my parents flew from Chicago to Louisville. And I thought they were going to fight to keep me in school. My father's a dentist. He knew the dean very well. And all they needed to do was to threaten a lawsuit and I would stay in school for three months and get my doctorate. Besides, isn't that what any good Chinese parents should do anyway? (laughs) To my surprise, as we sat there in the dean's office, my mother looked to the dean and said, it's not important that Christopher becomes a dentist. What's more important is that Christopher becomes a Christ follower. And she said that they are going to support whatever decision the school made. See, my mom knew that when it comes to her children, nothing is more important than her children following Jesus. Even more important than career, even more important than education. But the sad reality is many people will go to church on Sunday and worship God, but then they will return home and worship idols. The idol of education, the idol of career, and in essence, we are forcing our kids to do the same. Let's think about this. Are parents putting more emphasis on a weekly basis on their children getting their homework done, getting a better grade, getting into a good school? Or should Christian parents be putting the most emphasis upon our children following Jesus? It's no wonder why many youth raised in the church go off to college and they leave their faith behind because maybe they were never really worshiping God in the first place. When it comes to our children, nothing, absolutely nothing is more important than our children following Jesus. But I have to be honest with you. I was not happy about my mother's decision. (laughs) She was not on my side. She was on the school side. So I moved further away from them, further away from Chicago, to the bright lights and big city of Atlanta, Georgia. And there I quickly took over the drug scene in the gay community. And I became a supplier to other dealers in over a dozen states. In addition, it was nothing for me to have multiple anonymous sexual encounters each and every day. Because according to the world, I had it all. Money, fame, drugs, and sex. I'd exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And I began worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. Because in my world, I had become God. 
Leon and I had no idea that Christopher was doing drugs. But we knew his biggest need was to know Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. So I sent him Christian cards several times a week. And I filled them with encouraging words, scripture, and hymns. At the bottom of each card, I signed, Love you forever, Mom. Little did I know he never read them and simply tossed them into the trash. My wife and I know the only way if we want to see our son, we have to flew from Chicago to Atlanta. So we did. But on the second day, he kicked us out, not even allow us to call a friend to pick us up. Before leaving, I offered Christopher my very first Bible. Not surprisingly, he refused. But I left my uh, first Bible on his counter anyway, and we found out later he took my Bible, threw it into the trash. It was more than obvious that he was totally unreachable and completely hopeless. But my wife and I committed not to focus on the hopelessness, but on the promises of God. Along with over a hundred prayer warriors from my church and from the BSF, we cry out to God for Christopher. My wife began to pray a very bold prayer. God, do whatever it takes to bring this prodigal son to you. In her desperation, she fasted every Monday for eight years. Once fasted 39 days for Christopher. Every morning, she would literally spend hours in her prayer closet, on her knees, reading the Bible, interceding for Christopher, and praying for herself, for me, and for many others. She wrote out some of her prayers, and following is one of those prayers. I will stay in the gap for Christopher. I will stand until the victory is won, until Christopher's heart changes. I will stay in the gap every day, and there I will fervently pray. And Lord, just one favor. Don't let me waver. If things get quite rough, which they may, I will never give up on that son, nor will you. Though the enemy seeks to destroy, I will not quit as an intercede, though it may take years. I give you my fears and tears as I trust every moment I plead. I prayed those prayers for eight years, and it seemed that God was not answering them. But during those years, God did answer my prayers, just not in the way I expected. His answer for me was, wait, be still, and know that I am God. Looking back upon those years when I prayed for change, God did bring change. The change was not yet in Christopher. 
but the change was in me and my husband. What God intended for that time was that we will be changed, that we will be transformed, that we will be trophies of God's mercy. Oswald Chambers said, we are not here to prove God answers prayer. We are here to be living monuments of God's grace. As we live out those years of waiting, we learn to walk and live as monuments of His grace as God drew us to Himself each and every day. Often answer to prayer doesn't come quickly. And this definitely was not an exception. But my parents were unwavering in their faithfulness to intercede on my behalf. Like the persistent widow, my mother bombarded heaven with her prayers. She knew that it was going to take nothing short of a miracle to bring this prodigal son to the father. And a miracle is exactly what God did. This miracle came with a bang on my door. I opened up my door and on my front doorstep were 12 federal drug enforcement agents, Atlanta police, and two big German shepherd dogs. I just received a large shipment of drugs, not my largest, but they confiscated all my money and my drugs and I was charged with the street value equivalent of 9.1 tons of marijuana, which is gonna be legal here in July, right? With that amount, I was facing 10 years to life in federal prison. I had started with a bright future among society's finest in academia, and I found myself in the ditch among society's despised in the Atlantic City Detention Center. So, I tried calling my friends. You know, those type of friends that say, whenever you need something, just give me a call. Those friends that actually get me more into trouble than anything else. But what I did not know was I had a praying mother at home. Watch out. And she knew that as long as I had those type of friends around, I would find no need for God and no need for my parents. Remember she loves bold prayers? Well, she prayed specifically years ago that somehow, some way, God would cause all of my friends to desert me. And on that day, not one friend answered my collect call. So mothers, beware of your prayers. They're going to come true. So I was down to the bottom of the list. Home. And I did not want to make that phone call. As I imagined the earful that I was going to get on the other line. But my mother's first words were, Son, are you okay? No condemnation, no berating words, just words of unconditional love and grace. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Notice Paul isn't saying that it's God's anger. It's not God's wrath, but it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And even on that miserable day, God was pouring out his grace and drawing me to himself through the words of my mother.
Actually, my mom was excited to get that phone call, if you can believe it or not, because <laughs> I hadn't called home in years, and she knew without a doubt that this was God's answer to her prayers. So as she hung up that phone, fighting back the tears, she remembered that she had to do like that good old hymn says, count your blessings, name them one by one. No matter what storm she was going through, no matter what heartache she was enduring, she still had to count her blessings. So after setting the phone down, next to the phone was a calculator. And she tore off a little piece of the adding machine tape. And on it, she wrote down these first blessings. Christopher is is in a safe place compared to before. (laughs) And he called home for the very first time. As my years in prison passed, she kept adding to this list and counting her blessings. And today, this list of blessings is longer and taller than she is. Both sides. Three days later, I was walking around the cell block. Actually, I was doing my best to stay to myself because I didn't want to mingle too much with those really bad people, you know, those criminals. (laughs) I passed by this garbage can. And in jail, they don't take the trash out every day. So it was essentially overflowing out of the can. And as I looked at this mound of rubbish, I thought, this is my life. I'm, I'm from upper middle class suburb of Chicago. My father has two doctorates. I was only three months away from receiving my own doctorate. I had it made. But now I found myself among common criminals. Trash. With my head down, I was about to pass by that garbage can, but something on top of the trash caught my eye. I bent over, I picked it up, and it was a Gideon's New Testament. I took that New Testament back to my cell. I opened up that good book. For the first time, I read through the entire Gospel of Mark that night. But you know, I wasn't thinking this is the Word of God. I wasn't even thinking this will be the answer to some of my problems. As a matter of fact, I was simply thinking that I've got an enormous amount of time on my hands, and I better pass it somehow. But as many of you know, what we have in our Bibles is not just ink on paper, but what we have in our Bibles, ladies and gentlemen, is the very breath of God. And it is living and powerful and sharper than any double-edged sword, able to cut through the hardest of hearts, exposing my sin, my rebellion, and it wasn't a pretty sight. And I thought things couldn't get any worse. I was wrong. A couple weeks later, I was called into the nurse's office. The jail guards 
handcuff me, chained my hands around my waist, shackled my feet together. I shuffled into the nurse's office. She sat me down, shut the door behind me, and I knew something wasn't right. She was uncomfortably struggling with the words. She couldn't even give me eye contact. So she resigned to writing something on a piece of paper and slowly slid it across the desk to me. I looked down and I saw three letters and a symbol. It read HIV positive. A few days before Christmas, I received Christopher's phone call from jail. The noise in the background could not cover up his sad and hopeless words. Mom, I am HIV positive. His sullen and weak voice trailed off as my body went limp. I felt dizzy, and the world around me seemed to stop. Ever since Christopher told us he was gay, I had lived with this constant fear that Christopher might one day contract this deadly virus. My worst nightmare was now a reality. Christopher was sentenced to six years in federal prison, but news of his HIV status was like that sentence, a verdict I could not accept. Hang up the phone, the pains of grief torn in my broken heart like a knife. Aimlessly, I stumbled up the steps and dragged my heavy body into my prayer closet. Under the cross, I fell to my knees, a stinging tears blurred my eyes. This affliction was more than I could bear. In the silence of my sorrow, a melody began to play in my heart. The soft and sweet string of a hymn filled my ears and repeat over and over. It is well, it is well with my soul. with us.
few days after receiving that devastating news, I was in my prison cell all by myself, just contemplating the mess that I've made of my life. I lie there all by myself, and I look up at the cold metal bunk above me. On it was scribbled and scratched graffiti, profanity, gang symbols. But someone had written something else in the corner, and it read, if you're bored, read Jeremiah 29, 11. <laughs> For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. You see, at the most hopeless point in my life, the Lord God was using the words penned by prophet thousands of years ago to a rebellious nation Israel to tell me that regardless of who I was and what I had done in my past, he still, he still had a plan for me. I had no clue where that plan was going to take me, but God gave me enough faith, enough strength to get through that one day and the next and the next. My transformation was gradual. I wish I could tell you that at that moment I got down on my knees, I said a sinner's prayer, and then everything after that was perfect, like I had no more problems. (laughs) It's far from the truth. God was convicting me of my dependencies. The most obvious was drugs. Remember, that's why I'm in prison. That's the most obvious one. But within a few months, God delivered me from the bondage of that addiction. God kept bringing to mind other dependencies, other idols. And there was one that I felt like I just couldn't let go of. And it was my sexual identity. I was reading through the Bible and it was so clear to me that God loved me unconditionally. As I kept reading... I found some passages, three in the old, three in the new, that seemed to condemn that core part of who I thought I was, my sexuality. So I went to the chaplain and I asked him his opinion. I wanted more information. I'm a new Christian. I don't know much about this Bible thing. And so I thought, well, the chaplain is probably more informed. He studied it. He went to school for it. So I asked him his opinion. And to my surprise, this chaplain told me that the Bible doesn't condemn homosexuality. And he gave me a book from his shelf. And he said, here, this book explains that view. So naturally, with much curiosity, I took that book in the hopes of finding biblical justification for homosexuality. I had that book in one hand and the Bible in the other. And can I just tell you, from a purely human perspective, I had every reason in the world to accept what that book is claiming to justify the way I had been living. But God's indwelling Holy Spirit convicted me that those assertions from that book were a clear distortion of God, his word, and his unmistakable condemnations against same-sex relationships. I couldn't even finish that book, and I gave it back to the chaplain, which meant I turned to the Bible alone. And I went through every verse 
Every chapter, every page of scripture looking for justification. The chaplain said God blesses same-sex relationships. And I thought, well, I want to read that for myself with my own eyes in God's word. And so I looked. I mean, I wanted to find any type of a positive affirmation, a blessing for a monogamous same-sex relationship. I went through the whole Bible several I mean, I went cover to cover several times I had time. I looked, and I looked, and I looked, and I couldn't find any. So I was at a turning point, and a decision had to be made. Either abandon God in his word, live as a gay man, pursue a monogamous same-sex relationship by allowing my attractions, get this, by allowing my attractions to dictate not only who I am, but also how I lived. Or... Abandon pursuing a monogamous same-sex relationship. How? By freeing myself from my sexuality. By not allowing my sexual identity to control who I am. And live as a follower of Jesus Christ. My decision was clear and obvious. I followed Jesus As the days and the weeks and the months of abstinence passed, I learned several important lessons. First, I learned that abstaining from sex is actually possible. I I know that might sound weird, but the world kept telling me it wasn't, but it actually is. Who knew? Second, I learned that Sexual abstinence is not going to make me psychotic or sick, no matter what Freud and Oprah say. Third, I realized that after abstaining from sex for a little while, that as a matter of fact, my sexuality doesn't have to be the core of who I am. I told myself before, God loves me unconditionally, and that's true, but before, what I did was I added to God's truth. I added, so therefore, God doesn't want me to change. I know you hear something like this from your friends who say, God loves me just the way I am, so leave me alone. But after reading through the Bible, I found out that unconditional love is not the same thing as unconditional approval of my behavior. Let me say it again. Unconditional love is not the same thing as unconditional approval of my behavior. My identity should not be defined by my sexuality. My identity shouldn't be grounded in my sexual desires. My identity is not gay, is not ex-gay, is not even heterosexual for that matter. Because my identity as a child of the living God must be in Jesus Christ alone. God says, be holy for I am holy. You know, I had thought that if I were to become a Christian, that I would have to become heterosexual, that somehow the more sexually attracted I were to women, the more of a godly man I would be. (laughs) But I realized that even if I had heterosexual feelings, I would still need to flee temptation. I would still need to put to death my sin nature every day. So as a matter of fact, God never tells us, be heterosexual for I am heterosexual. (laughs) But neither did God say, be homosexual for I am homosexual. So the opposite of homosexuality is not heterosexuality. That's not the goal. But the opposite of homosexuality is holiness. As a matter of fact, the opposite of any sin struggle is holiness. 
I don't need to focus upon what my temptations are. I don't need to focus upon whether I'm struggling or not. But I need to focus upon living a life of holiness and living a life of purity. Because change is not the absence of temptations. God doesn't promise you that when you come to Jesus Christ, you'll never be tempted anymore. No, that's not the life of a Christian. Change is not the absence of temptations, but change is the ability, the freedom to be holy even in the midst of temptations. Because the ultimate issue is not whether I'm struggling or whether I'm tempted or not, but the ultimate issue is that I yearn after God in total surrender and complete obedience. As I began to live this life of surrender and obedience, God began to reveal his plan for my life. And he called me to full-time vocational ministry while I was in prison, of all places. And I realized it didn't matter where I was, whether I was in prison or out of prison, because my calling will remain the same regardless of the location. And with that change of heart, God did another miracle. And he shortened my sentence from six years to three years, which is almost unheard of in the federal system. So with only about a year left of my prison sentence, I knew if I wanted to continue on in ministry after prison, I'd better learn more about the Bible. So I called up collecting my parents, and I asked them to mail me an application to the only Bible college I had ever heard of called Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. But then there was silence on the other line because I think they both dropped their phones. They mailed the application into me to prison. I was so excited when I got it. I tore it open, began filling it out, writing the essays until I got to the last page where they asked me for references. Not from anybody, but specifically people who knew me as a Christian for at least one year. Do the math. I had some slim pickings in prison. But I was able to persuade a prison chaplain, a prison guard, and another prison inmate to write my references to Moody. So amazingly, Moody actually accepted me. Praise the Lord. Yes, it's a miracle. I was released from prison in July of 2001, and I started the very next month in August of 2001. So imagine the surprise of my classmates when I answered their question, what did you do this summer? (laughs) I graduated from Moody in 2005, went on to get my master's in biblical exegesis from Wheaton College Graduate School, received my doctorate of ministry in 2014 from Bethel Seminary in St. Paul, Minneapolis, and I had the immense honor of co-authoring a book with my mother called Out of a Far Country, A Gay Son's Journey to God, A Broken Mother's Search for Hope. We wrote it together. She wrote chapter one, I wrote chapter two, she wrote chapter three. She wrote all the odd chapters, I wrote the even chapters, because we wanted to tell you from our own voice how you can have the same situation told from two totally different perspectives, a parent, a prodigal, and then God in his power and his grace brought us all back together. Our book now has been translated into seven different languages, including Chinese, Korean, Spanish, uh, and we have them, I think we're kind of running out, but we still have some left, uh, I think. We'll just like take, take down names and we'll send them back out. And we're, my mom and I, we actually spend time to sign each, each one of those. So you, see, you can have those out there. But in the back of each book is a free eight-week discussion guide that people are using to continue this conversation at home. Christian high schools are using it as a textbook. Because I hope, I hope you realize this, parents and grandparents. Our youth are being flooded, inundated with resources on sexuality almost all from a non-Christian worldview. And how do we respond? Usually, parents, 
we do little or nothing or we think maybe the one time in their lifetime to talk about sex is enough when they're getting this information on a weekly, daily basis. And I'm gonna address the Asian parents here because I know Asians, we don't talk about sex. But if you do not, parents, Chinese parents, please hear me. Asian parents, please hear me. Listen carefully. If you do not, because I would, I'm, I'm just, I'll just be realistic and I, I would say probably the majority of you do not talk to your kids about sex. If you do, praise the Lord. If you do not, I guarantee you the world will. Over and over and over. And it's no wonder why our children think the way they do because we do nothing. We have to. And let, and let me also tell you something. Don't think that just because, you know, that, that we, you know, the public school is talking about it. Let me tell you something. The job, the, the, the real job, the primary responsibility to teach sex and sexuality is not the public school's job. Amen? We got one person that agree with that. Anyone else agree with that? Let me say that again. The primary job, amen. The primary job to teach sex education is not the public school's job, amen? amen. And I'm gonna say something else. Maybe the youth leaders and youth, youth uh, pastor will like this. It's not even the youth pastor's job. Not that he can't talk about it, he should, but it's not his primary responsibility to teach sex and sexuality to our youth. You know who's the main responsibility? Parents. And secondary, grandparents. Grandparents, don't think you're off the hook. <laughs> you might even have more of an opportunity to talk to these kids because they'll listen to you, right? Right? I mean, parents, they don't, kids don't listen to their parents, but grandparents, you have a, a more ear to, to these kids. There was one grandmother, and this is a really funny story. We were in this really rural area in Oklahoma in, in the U.S. You know, Oklahoma is just very rural. I mean, we looked out the, you know, got out, went out the church, and it was just all plains, you know, I mean, uh, you know, uh, prairie and, uh, you know, flat, and, you know, you look out and just, just cornfields and, you know, maybe a few tornadoes, you know, and just, it was just, and... And this, this, this lady, I mean, again, this is very rural, and this older lady, she just made a beeline toward, toward our book table, and she said, I want 10 books. I was like, wow, you know, just need one. She's like, no, young man, I need 10. And she explained to me, she said, I need one for myself and nine for my grandchildren. I'm gonna mail every one of them a book tomorrow, and I'm gonna read it with them, and I'm gonna uh, ask questions and talk about it with them. That's a grandmother who takes seriously the God-given responsibility we have, parents and grandparents, to equip, not expose, but equip our children on biblical sexuality. The question I know many of you parents are thinking, you know, when is it too early? That's not the right question, but when is it too late? Because too often, we are too little, too late. Silence is no longer an option. Tonight, I'm going to be delving deeper into how do we respond well, how do we love our those in the gay community and share Christ to those in the gay community. It's kind of like an encapsulation of my third book coming out on November 20th called Holy Sexuality and the Gospel, Sex, Desire, and Relationships Shaped by God's Grand Story. So keep an eye out for that. That'll be coming out on November 20th. Um, and, uh, but tonight we'll be talking about that digging deeper about now what? In the light of biblical sexuality, how do we share Christ to our loved ones in the gay community? Amazingly, God has given us back that the years that the locusts have taken away. 
And my parents and I, we travel around the nation, around the world as a two-generational ministry. How cool is that? Two generations talking about God's grace. Praise the Lord. <laughs> talking about God's grace and God's truth on this issue of sexuality. And then as if that wasn't a big enough blessing from God, God has a sense of humor because he's brought me back to Moody where I'm now teaching in the Bible department. So I went from prisoner to professor. How about that for a resume? <laughs> but God, God has done far, far more abundantly beyond all that we have asked or thought. I look back upon my life, years, decades, far apart from Christ, and I see a lot of really bad decisions that I've made, several that have resulted in some lasting consequences, one of those being HIV positive. But do you know in reality, I'm no different than any of you. All of our days are numbered. Not one person in this room, young or old, nine to 99, has ever been promised tomorrow here on this good earth. But don't we live with that expectancy that we take it for granted tomorrow will come. That's not a guarantee. It took getting HIV for contracting this virus where there's no cure to realize something very important. And that is that as a child of God, I must live with a sense of urgency. Can I tell you something? This world we live in today, it's crazy. I mean, in the U.S., we're, we're like at each other's throats. There's this huge culture war raging. We have all these natural disasters happening. We have earthquakes. We have fires. We have mudslides. We have hurricanes. And then we go overseas and we get threat of terrorism, threat of nuclear war, orphans, widows, sex trafficking, all this craziness in the world that we see today. You know what I learned from that? What we need today is not another good Christian. A good Christian who might go to church every Sunday, good person in the eyes of man, but doing little for the kingdom of heaven. We do not need, we don't need another good Christian. But what we need, what this world demands, are great Christians. Christians who don't settle for mediocrity. Christians who don't care really what the person on the left says or the person on the right says, but they're living to please our Heavenly Father. Christians who are living with a sense of urgency. Today might be our last. The Lord Jesus Christ might be coming back tomorrow. Are you ready? God has given you but one life. One life. 70 years most of you will live and that's a drop in the bucket when compared to eternity. And what we do here matters. Are you living all for Jesus or not? That's the question. Because all of us have been created for greatness. Whether you think, I mean, you might not think that, but we have been created for greatness. Not in the eyes of man to say, oh, look at me. Look how great I am. That's greater than the eyes of the world. But we've been created, every one of you, to be great in the eyes of God, which means being the least of these. 
which means not coming to be served, but coming to serve. Because whether you're ready or not, I promise you, there will come one day in the blink of an eye. And my hope and my prayer is that he can look at each one of us in the eyes and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. O Lord our God, you are enthroned above all creation, of all that was ever, was, is, and will be. You formed everything and called it good. And then you shaped man from the earth and you called it very good. God, you created us for greatness and yet unfortunately, Lord God, we have turned from your way. Oh God, forgive us. God, repent. We repent from chasing after futile, vain things of this world, God. Help us, Lord, to make this day a new day. To follow you without abandon, oh God. God, we want to be great. Make a difference in this world. One life at a time. Oh God, we want to see a revival. A revival begins in our hearts. Might that revival begin with me, oh God? Might that revival begin here, oh God? Heal our land, heal our hearts, so that we can be a light to those around us, oh God. God, I thank you for this church. Might we be a beacon of light for your glory that people will remember Willingdon to be the place where they are loved and where radical transformation happens. But God, that has to begin here in our own hearts, in our own families. Do this miracle, oh God, for your own glory. We love you, God. We praise you. And we ask this in the mighty, matchless name of Jesus, the Messiah. And the people of God said, amen. amen. Thank you, uh, Christopher. Thank you, Leon, Angela, for sharing so clearly, transparently, graciously, beautifully. We are grateful. Uh, they're going to be at the book table, as Christopher said. Pick up a book, maybe 10. Um, <laughs> say hi to them. They'd love to meet you. Uh, tonight, some people have asked, is it the same as this morning? No, it's a different presentation, as Christopher said. And he has some really good counsel for us. So uh, please do come back this evening, uh, 7 o'clock. And I just want to recite a word over you. Because as Christopher said, we all struggle in different ways, and we serve the God of hope. Paul writes in Romans 15, verse 13, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing 
that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. That means have more hope than you even need. So hope for yourself and for those that you love. Amen? Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful day. We'll see you later on, 7 p.m. Bye-bye.